This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We need a whole step that moves us towards and includes the thousands of people who have already been in prison for years in the Federal Bureau, and they have already made themselves better. And the only way that we can really do that is through sentencing reform. America's prisons are overflowing, but many who are kept behind bars are just children. Thousands of youths are tried as adults in the U.S. every year, and some are given life sentences in the country's harshest jails. Many then find themselves becoming victims of sexual violence and suicide. Authorities in western Pennsylvania have charged 11-year-old Jordan Brown as an adult. The boys will have one trial together in adult court. The length of his sentence is also the length of his life. They're not old enough to drive, drink, or vote, but in America, kids as young as seven years old can be tried as adults. Our mission at Death by Incarceration is to shed light on a system that viciously targets marginalized people. The United States is quickly moving back to the crime and punishment model that made us the most incarcerated country in the world. We feel our message and show are more important than ever. This country has a human rights crisis. It's not about politics. It's about what our moral obligations are to our fellow citizens and how we treat other human beings. In the words of the great Bell Hooks, for me, Forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? During our first season, we realized that most of our conversations revolved around men, virtually ignoring the impact mass incarceration has on women and girls. Suave and I have interviewed over 20 women for our next series of episodes. We have some amazing stories to share and are proud of the work we've done to prepare for the next phase of our show. Over the past quarter century, there has been a profound change in the involvement of women within the criminal justice system. This is the result of more expansive law enforcement efforts, stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry that uniquely affect women. The female incarcerated population stands over seven times higher than it did in 1980. More than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18. This week on the show, we have Maria Gellner. She's a public interest attorney and fierce advocate for equal justice. As FAM's Pennsylvania State Policy Director, she works with families, policymakers, the media, and the public to run reform initiatives in her home state. Maria has protected the rights and dignity of thousands of families over the last decade. She came to FAM from the Federal Defender's Office for the Western District of Pennsylvania, where she was the sole attorney for the Erie Division. She's also served as a trial lawyer on Florida's Gulf Coast and clerked with the Legal Aid Society in Queens. Maria sat on the Third Circuit Lawyers Advisory Committee and the board of Erie County Bar Association, where she co-founded the Diversity and Inclusion Section. She organizes with and supports participatory defense and bail fund hubs and was recognized by the Pennsylvania Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers for exceptional advocacy and commitment to education and equal justice. Maria graduated from Fordham University and New York Law School, where she was the president of Lawyers Without Borders and an editor of the Global Human Rights Bulletin. She holds a Juris Doctor and Bachelor's degrees in political science and international relations. Maria's advocacy work speaks for itself. Your call to action this week is to look into FAM. Find out what they're doing in your area and see how you can support the end of mandatory minimums. Thank you so much for listening. So my name is Maria Gellner. I'm the Pennsylvania State Policy Director for FAM. And I just came to FAM and policy work in general after 10 years as a criminal defense trial attorney, beginning in Queens, New York, down to 
the Gulf Coast in Florida and then back up to my hometown in Pennsylvania, which is Erie, Pennsylvania, where I'm appearing from. And I have worked at the local municipal level in defense, at the state level, and then most recently I moved to policy from the federal defender. So was a federal defender there for a while. So have kind of seen every different system in all these different states. And after a decade of being in that system, you know, really just have been grappling the whole time, but kind of just personally came to a head with the assembly line and, and the meat grinder of it and, you know, my participation in it as well. So I, I was working as a public defender. I know you're interviewing some public defenders coming up and tried for a long time, you know, to be the best, to, to make real relationships. I did. I love my clients. They love me. I still really good friends with many, many people that I met in that work. But it's just, you know, one person can't hold that up. And so I think in the public defense system, you can be very isolated. And so after after kind of going through that, I decided, you know, you're always working within those boxes in that system. And so my hope in transitioning to policy is that we are going to break that box and stretch that box and poke holes in that box and ultimately break that to create more pathways for people. Personally, you know, I have two toddlers. I have a very close family. I'm Italian. Um, my mother's from Italy. And so, you know, I'm here with my family. And that's very important to me as well. And I definitely bring that to my work and for all of my clients. I also have had multiple incarcerated loved ones. And so I also bring that to work with me every day. Well, so tell us a little bit about FAM as well, so we can set some context for the policy work you're doing now. Absolutely. So FAM's a national organization based in DC. It's a nonprofit. It's nonpartisan. I'm based in Pennsylvania, though. Um, and so all my work is Pennsylvania focused. We also have other states that we work heavily in, and then we do a ton of work at the federal system. FAM was really instrumental in getting the crack powder disparity dropped at the federal level, and now is working really hard to pass the Equal Act to make that retroactive. In, in Pennsylvania and throughout the country, really FAM's focus is the time of sentencing until you're released from prison. So, you know, we don't have the capability to work on every issue under the sun, even if we would want to. And our lane is the time of sentencing until you're released from prison. So really three things, sentencing reform. FAM originally stood for Families Against Mandatory Minimums when it was founded 30 years ago. Um, really now we just go by FAM because we've expanded from mandatory minimums. So we work a lot on, you know, just extreme sentencing in general, trying to end automatic life without parole, trying to end life without parole in general, trying to end still end these crazy mandatory minimums, which every time we turn around, someone is trying to bring them back, including in Pennsylvania right now. There are bills on the table this fall right now in the legislature that could bring back severe mandatory minimums for people that we always have to play defense and oppose. So we really always have to do that. And then offensively, these other things, um, ending extreme sentences. We work a lot on medical parole and compassionate release, and we have a 50-state report on that. So if you're interested in what your state does on medical parole or compassionate release, you can look at our 50-state report. And then also prison oversight, prison conditions are a big part of what we do. In Pennsylvania, you already know that the situation is really bad. We just have an awful crisis situation in Pennsylvania that people are starting to take note of. And we are really pushing our second chance agenda with lawmakers, which I can definitely send you. And it's basically end life without parole, allow medical and geriatric parole, and also expand clemency. How are you directing these policies and policy work and, and other changes towards women as well? Because a lot, of, as we talked about when we started, you know, a lot of the organizations are directing this towards men's prisons. Definitely. So, I mean, a couple things. So first of all, obviously I am a woman. So I bring, you know, I think woman sensibility to all of my work and trying to really have a holistic view about my work and listen to families. And so what families give back to me directs a lot of my work. And we have, you know, monthly regular calls with families. I'm talking to families every day. I'm responding to people's letters every night, many of whom are from women's prisons in Pennsylvania. You know, I think shining a light on it is the, and listening is the number one thing I'm trying to do. Every reform FAM is trying to enact is going to apply to women as well. You know, we hear a lot about dignity for incarcerated women bills. Typically, a lot of those are things that state prisons are already doing. So some of those can be more superficial things instead of cutting to the heart of these extreme sentences, which is what we're trying to do. In Pennsylvania, we have some groups that are really, really focused on women. And so my view coming in, you know, two months in as Pennsylvania State Policy Director 
is that we are part of a team, right? Like I'm not gonna do this by myself, nobody is. So we are working with every other group in Pennsylvania. And the project that I'm particularly excited about that I'd love to you know, have you look at if you're not familiar with it already is the Women's Lifer Resume Project in Pennsylvania. Are you familiar with that? I mean, yeah, I'm, we familiar with it, but it's like when you say we have groups in Pennsylvania that is working, which groups are them? I mean, so, because I know a, I know of the one you just mentioned, which is Jill McCorkle, right? Um, Dr. Jill McCorkle. But other than that, you know, as a as an advocate, as a person that's been incarcerated, I can really say that women are like a footnote in the conversation. You know, for every man that get commuted, we might be talking about one woman that's applying for commutation. For every five exonerate, we haven't even seen a woman yet mm -hmm. come up. And, and the question should be, why when these prisons are packed with women from urban communities? So to me, it's like, you know, when we decided to dedicate this whole season to women advocates and women that are fighting to change the system, you know, we did it for a reason because we realized in our first season that women were the footnote in the conversation of reforming the system. And we want to make sure that this is a priority for those that have the power to shape the tree that we're not forgetting about the sisters incarcerated. So we really appreciate the work you're doing, but I would like to know if you know where can our listeners go to if they want to support the mission of these organizations that's, that's supposed to be supporting women. We know FAM is working, that we know for a fact. We know um, the, the Pennsylvania Prison Project is working. We know that for a fact because we affiliated with them. But other than them two that I just mentioned, I'm still trying to find out who are these groups and what are they working for when they come oh. to the women's uh, yeah. issues? Let's Get Free in Pittsburgh is pretty focused on women and trans individuals, so that's one. The Women's Life or Resume Project is not specifically an advocacy organization. They're trying to lift up the stories of women. So if you definitely check out their website, they have many of the 200 women lifers in Pennsylvania have done projects and resumes and told their stories very bravely on that website. Um, and one of the things that they talk about on there, you know, if you start to read those stories, you're gonna see, you know, that almost every, I'll say almost every one of them involves some kind of trauma, sexual assault, you know, something prior to coming to prison. So I have a bunch of different threads I wanna take from your question, but definitely one, I think all of the groups that are working like FAM need to lift up those stories and use those stories, you know, obviously with their consent, which they've given and, you know, tell those more widely. Something I learned from working with the Women's Lifer Resume Project and talking to women lifers, I was shocked. You know, I talked to a woman, the mother of a woman a couple of weeks ago, whose daughter has done about 12 years, has never heard of a federal habeas. So that was shocking to me. And for your listeners, you know, once you have a, what's called exhausted, your appeals in the Pennsylvania state appellate process, then you can go federal, right? And file your um, federal habeas claims and say that there were mistakes made. We have all of these women, including lifers, who, ha who don't know what a federal habeas is. That was shocking to me. And I found out that the reason for that was because there are so many less women, they don't have the crowdsourced knowledge that many of the men have, you know, where you might have a guy who really knows, you know, knows the legal situation and then shares that information, shares that this person goes to a different prison, the word gets out. The women are not having that in the same way. So definitely just going to the women's prison is something that's on my, you know, I mean, I have in the past, but we're trying to do that again, do presentations about their rights and things that they can do, because that was very shocking to me. Um, that there are women who've done over a decade who have never even heard of a federal habeas. So, you know, let's get free. I think the Women's Life or Resume Project are probably the only two that I know of in my first two months that deal, you know, exclusively with women. And then I do want to follow up on another thread about, you know, mentioning the trauma, sexual assault. I can tell you as a 36-year-old woman that I don't really know another woman my age who does not have some type of sexual assault. And that is 
you know, whether it was date rape, whether it was, you know, violent rape, whether it was somewhere on this wide spectrum of what that can mean. And the fact that just in, you know, of the people that I know, my age, incarcerated, not incarcerated from any demographic and economic, whatever that you want to call, the fact that that is the way it is, is a really sad reflection, I think, of where we've been and in the culture. And so one of the things that I think does relate to women that I want to do that we are doing this fall at FAM, and I know you've talked a lot about this with Miss Didi, who I know also and is fantastic, is really reclaiming some of that traditionally like law and order victim space. So one of the things we're going to do this fall is train people how they can register as victims with the Office of the Victim Advocate to take back, you know, some of that space and say, you know, no, we're over here too. We've all been through this too. Like you can't leave us out right. of this conversation or who you're calling a victim. So we're gonna be working on that all throughout the fall. That is not exclusively a women's issue, but I think with the prevalence of, you know, especially sexual assault, domestic violence in the women who are incarcerated <laughs> for life in Pennsylvania, I mean, it's like virtually all of them who have that. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think that's gonna make a difference. And I do wanna say real quick too, one thing I'd love to bring to Pennsylvania as well, I saw in another state recently a, a program about sexual assault to prison pipeline. And I had not heard that called a pipeline before. So that was, and, and it is, I mean, it absolutely is. And I would say, you know, from my federal cases, you know, I'd go in and get a case where, you know, okay, this case is about guns, this case is about drugs. No, this case is about molestation. You might not see that anywhere on the court document, but sexual assault was so prevalent, especially, you know, when my clients were children, in so many cases, you wouldn't believe. So, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of the cases that we have seen, when we go into the cases, dive in, we find out that a lot of these women were in traumatic relationship that led them into incarceration, which dealt with sex, sex trafficking. And that's a conversation that a lot of people don't want to have. You know, me personally, I consider myself a feminist. So I don't believe that no woman that's been sexually abused or molested as a child or sex trafficked that retaliates against her abuser deserves to be in prison for a lengthy amount of time, like we've seen in Pennsylvania, which a lot of this time, these women are receiving life sentences. I don't believe in that. And the reason I don't believe in that is because I come from a background where I've seen my mother being abused by her boyfriends and so-called hubbies and husbands, right? And I also know how it could have ended if my mother did not have male figures in her life that came to her defense. And that's a conversation that a lot of people don't want to have. And we need to have them because it goes to the heart of why there's so many women in prison serving life sentences for defending themselves against these attacks and abuses, period. But my question to you is this, right? As a woman that's out there fighting for these issues, what do you think our listeners could do to help the women's issues in prison come to the front of the conversation? Because as of now, it's interesting to me when I speak to a woman that's out there advocating for other women in prison because that is rare nowadays. So I applaud you for being out there and having these conversations in the front too. But what can we do collectively as a community to help you bring this message to the front? I mean, honestly, I'm gonna start real small. I want people to just write to someone in prison. I don't care who it is, just write to someone in prison because I really think that much of our society, you know, maybe not your listeners, but a lot of our society just does not think that people who are incarcerated are human beings too. And I've been in, you know, more prisons than, you know, most people that, that, you know, you'll ever meet. I have met more people charged with every, which type of crime, not just one type of crime, every type, you know, violent, homicide, sexual, children, you know, anything that you can think of I have sat down across the table from someone and talked to them about men and women all over this country. Every single time, guess what? They're just human beings. And there is always this complicated, very often traumatic story of how they got there. So if you are interested in women's issues, please look at the Women's Life or Resume Project. Please get in, you know, get in touch. Let's get, let's get free has a letter writing Zoom every Wednesday. The information is on their website and just start talking to a woman who is there because as I mentioned, I think they're very isolated. 
So I'm not going to ask you to go and, you know, your listeners to go and change everything right now. We don't have a magic wand. This struggle is going to go on past our lifetime. We need to recognize that, recognize like this is day by day hard work. Just get just right to one person, right to one woman who's incarcerated. And if you're not interested in women's issues, then just write to one man who's incarcerated and just start there. And I also really want to relay to your listeners and really to everybody working in this um, arena that, you know, anything that you can do, even if it's one letter, is valuable. I think too often as advocates, policymakers, podcasters, you know, we really feel that crushing weight all the time that needs to be fixed, you know, hundreds of years ago, and we're still fighting this today. And we feel like it's too much. We feel like we failed. We feel like we're not doing enough because it's not fixed, you know, tomorrow. And so if it's just one letter that you write, you know, sometime, you know, in the next month, that is valuable to me. That is valuable to that woman that you write to. And whatever you can do, if it's donating $5, if it's writing one letter, if it's doing a two minute action, you know, supporting FAM Second Chances agenda or any of our coalition partners or any other group's agenda, you know, that is valuable. And I want people to recognize that because that's very hard to internalize. Like if you can only do a little bit, it's hard to internalize that that's valuable, but it is. I'm just happy that you speak on that, right? (laughs) Because, you know, this season is dedicated to women and we are, we keeping truth to our word. Mm -hmm. And I just feel that when we ask these questions to other people, they don't have experience working with women. They always come up with the traditional, write your state legislator, write your senator. You know, they come up with the with the textbook answers, which are not working. Right now, I'm going to take the liberty, and my partner don't even know this, <laughs> but I'm going to take the liberty on this episode. And I want to announce that Death by Incarceration will be giving out a $500 scholarship to a young woman that has a mother, sister, father in prison. All they have to do is write into the show and tell us with an essay, why do they deserve this scholarship? And it's going to call, it's, it's um, the Death by Incarceration Scholarship. It will be the first one giving out. This is coming on this episode to a woman incarcerated, no matter if she in PA or across the border. Thank you. That's fantastic. You know, and so if fan could take that and promote it, that's cool. But it has to be a woman that's been, a, a young woman They've been impacted by the criminal justice system or has a loved one in prison. And my partner don't even know this. I was going to announce <laughs> this at the end of the season, but we're putting it out there now. Well, right? I want to back up for a minute because you said, you know, talk to your senator, talk to your lawmakers. Like, we can, you know, that's, that's not for everybody. You know, for the people that that's for, you know, we can work up to that. And, and FAM is happy to train people on how to do that. Like, I'm not saying don't do that. We want that. But if all you feel like, you know, you can really do is have a conversation in your personal life, you know, when someone in your family at work, in your social circle, whatever it is, you know, says something or there's that opening for you to have a conversation about these issues, that is a brave, difficult thing to do. So even just having that conversation, like every little piece of that, every piece, is changing culture and that's a very amorphous difficult thing to do and we are all doing it and if all you can do is have one conversation this month where you say hey i was thinking about you know women lifers i was thinking about you know why do we call them juveniles and not children like i don't call my kids juveniles i call them children right if that's all if that's all you can do that is valuable and you know if you want to talk to lawmakers let's talk about it we could do that too today the criminal justice system is in the midst of a painful reckoning as states determine whether the life sentences of more than 2,000 people should be reconsidered that's because they were given mandatory life terms as juveniles which the supreme court has since ruled unconstitutional So how did so many kids get life behind bars in the first place? It was a trend that took off in the 80s and 90s when fear of teenage crime was at a fever pitch. Criminologists were warning about a supposed new breed of remorseless teen killers, so-called super predators. For sure. And really quick, we also do storytelling workshops to, to be able to, you know, show how to tell that story effectively. And on a related note, I'm also looking at, you know, I feel like we also, even though we're in this work, like a lot of times 
we can leave our incarcerated people behind on this. Like not everybody incarcerated, you know, especially if they have an active case, open stuff going on, you know, facts still in dispute, you know, okay, maybe they shouldn't write to their lawmaker, but we have a lot of people doing a lot of time who would love to help write to their lawmaker. You know, why aren't we, you know, campaigning, you know, with them in prison? So that is something else that I'm gonna be looking at. And for anybody that's able to listen to the podcast, how to find your lawmaker, how to talk to your lawmaker, you know, we and really ideally that should be an ongoing thing. Like if you are up for it, you have the capacity to, to do it, you know, visit your lawmaker, start with once a year, move up to twice a year, make it quarterly. Like you wanna have an ongoing relationship, doesn't need to be a whole, you know, big make or break thing. You want to develop a connection with that person and you have the right to, because they work for you. Yeah. Well, it's, and it, it, you know, I tell people this all the time. It's not that difficult to get a hold of state reps. It's a lot easier than people think, you know? And I mean, I have a weekly call with our state Senator here in that, that is the state Senator who covers the territory where San Quentin is. And that's part of his district. Um, and his legislative aide calls me once a week to, to check in. You know, and because I'm on a, the board of a nonprofit that goes into San Quentin and does resume writing and mock interview workshops, but it's the only organization that actually connects in the 35 state penitentiaries in California that actually brings employers into the prison to do mock interviews at the end of their their 12 week class. And so they actually we actually connect individuals that have had, had long term incarceration that are going to either get released or have a parole date where they're likely going to get released. We connect them with actual employers on the outside before they leave. What that's done for the population that's worked with us, and we've had a, almost 300 graduates from the program, we only have a 1% re recidivism rate. And the, the recidivism that we've had has all been technical violations. It hasn't been an, an additional crime. So connecting individuals inside, so it goes back to the letter writing that you're talking about. And Suave talks about this all the time. Men's prison visiting rooms are almost like a party. Women's prison visiting rooms can be like a funeral. You know, I mean, people just, they, they don't get the level of visitors. They don't get like the, you know, and it's like, but when they get out, they're expected to jump right back in and be the leaders of the family. And so, you know, I think getting people to write women in prison, getting people to show up to the visiting room, get cleared for visitation, be there so that they have that connection with the outside before they get out would be a, a huge change. And it would, you know, obviously it helps the community because then you, you know, who's coming back as well. Like you have that connection. They have somebody to call, you know, they have somebody who is interested in them and wants to support their well-being. You know, there's just so many things you've said so far in this interview. I think the other issue that we is sort of you know, it's, you don't hear about it as much as you should. And when you do, like even Suave sent me a, a news clip from Arizona about relationships between staff and and um, incarcerated people, you know, and the news clip that he sent me was like, had this weird bent, like women are using their sexuality as inmates to seduce these guards, right? And the fact of the matter is, in there, I don't think there's any states in the United States, or at least 48 of them, where a staff member having sex with an inmate is anything but rape. It's non-consensual sex because of the power dynamic. And so when, when news organizations come out with this nonsense, it really sets the narrative back like generations. And, you know, so women that are already in prison, you're talking about that trauma to prison pipeline, have already been traumatized and are now being re-traumatized by staff members who are using their power to have sexual relationships or they're raping these women straight out, you know? And the only time we hear about that in California is now because Newsom has allowed um, trans women to trans to transfer to women's prisons. And now there's this huge outcry about rape in prison, you know? And I'm like, rape in prison and women's prisons have been going on since prison started, you know? I mean, it's just a fact of life in there. and. So this idea that it's somehow like now an issue is ridiculous. And I think, you know, the more we get to talk to former COs, the more we get to talk to women who were formerly incarcerated, the more we get to tell these stories as well, the better. And that's a scary story to tell because one, if they're still incarcerated, they could be retaliated against because these cases don't really go anywhere. And if they're out on parole and they get sent back, there could be retaliation. You know, and and it's it's this is an issue that is definitely beyond the fact that women in prison aren't being talked about. I mean, this is like the you know, it's even lower on that kind of hierarchy of important issues. And it really is. I mean, it's it's happening all over the country.
And, you know, again, news organizations are making it seem like it's some consensual relationship. Clearly, these reporters have never spent any time behind bars. This is not consensual for the women. I don't care. You, but, you but this call is, whatever you but want. But this is why, Kevin, this is why we are doing this show. Because this we calling out all advocates that we need to start monitoring or monitoring what's going on behind these prison walls with these sisters because of these reports. I don't care. I don't even want to hear about it. That women are using their sexuality to entice these guards. It's a power dynamic, like you said. That it's it's not it's not happening. It's not happening, and nobody's speaking about it. Nobody's speaking about it. Everybody just read the article. Okay, that's what women. That's why they're in prison. No, it's rape. It is rape. I'm it is rape. If I'm, if I'm in a position, if I'm in a position of power, running a jail, and I'm having sex with a with a with an inmate, whether she's a, a, a woman or a male, that is rape. I don't care if she said we could do it or not. It is rape because of the power dynamic. The only reason that that person is engaging in that sexual relationship is to better her situation, perhaps, or to gain something that the jail don't offer that makes her situation less painful. That's not consent sex. And advocates out there should be ashamed not to speak up on this because they're scared to lose their volunteer status in the jail if I say something. Because if you don't speak on it, you're just as guilty as the people that's allowing this shit to happen in the prison system. Because as an advocate, it shouldn't matter if you go, if you are allowed to go into the prison or not. Your job as an advocate is to make sure that people are being treated fairly. I'm not saying open the gates of the prisons and let everybody out. That's not what we're advocating for. Oh, I'm saying that while they in your custody, Mr. DOC, Department of Correction, that these women get treated fairly with respect and dignity. That's all I'm asking for as an advocate. Did they get treated with dignity? I'm not getting into how much time they're doing, why they're in prison. It don't concern me. What concerns me is that while they're in prison with my tax dollars, that they get treated with dignity and respect. And not being taken advantage by your staff. That we, the taxpayers, are paying for. Definitely. Period. That's what there I'm is. asking. That's, that's all death by incarceration is asking the advocates to do. And the only way we're going to do that is if we are actively involved in monitoring what's going on in these prisons. Because a lot of these women's prisons are in the boondocks that nobody even want to go or visit. It's so far that you don't even hear about them unless something happens. When something happens, you get it like two, three months later. That's why we don't hear about these stories. Definitely. So, I mean, I've, I have a bunch I want to throw out back in response to that. You know, first of all, I, I have been, I don't know much about this organization, but I just got a newsletter from an organization called Just Detention. And they were, um, the entire, you know, I think point of that organization is to say rape is not part of the penalty. That was the, you know, the subline, rape in prison is not part of your sentence. And they're doing a campaign right now about, you know, like me too, but for people who are incarcerated. So I haven't, you know, I can forward that to you because I thought that was really interesting. And something we would love that. We that. To, yeah, we definitely, you know, need to hype that because I know, you know, we, Suave, we have mutual, you know, friends who have been raped in prison. And I do want to be very clear that that is not just a woman's issue. That is both a men and women's issue. There is a lot of rape that happens in men's prisons as well that people don't want to talk about. And one thing that I've said to judges before is, you know, you understand that by sentencing this person, you know, to state prison, you know, you're sentencing them to, at the time, you know, a one in six chance of being raped while in prison. That's part of your sentence. You know, we need to recognize that and judges need to recognize that when they're sentencing people. Um, right. In terms of like, in terms of oversight, and prison conditions, you know, we have people on the FAM staff who are really national experts in legislation on these fronts. So we have, you know, our general counsel, Mary Price, has really wrote that 50 state report on medical parole and compassionate release. Molly Gill, who's our deputy director of policy, has written model legislation for a ton of states around prison conditions and independent prison oversight that, you know, if there's something that needs to be reported like sexual assault, it needs to go outside of the prison chain of command to somebody who's independent, you know, and we have that model legislation on our website um, and our, and we always will tailor it, you know, for a specific jurisdiction, for a specific, you know, jail, for a specific lawmaker. But I want to encourage people if you, you know, you have a lot of agency over 
um, some of these smaller institutions. So we're talking a lot about, you know, we've talked about federal prisons, Pennsylvania state prisons, California prisons, but tons of people listening to your podcast, like me, will have a local county jail or municipal jail in their jurisdiction that have so little oversight by anybody. I mean, it's very shocking. And the flip side of that, which is great, is that if you pay a little bit of attention and show up to some meetings about it, you can really make a big difference. And so I just wanna encourage your listeners also, you know, sometimes people are like federal prison. I don't know any, people don't even know the difference between state and federal, right? So, you know, I really wanna encourage people, like if you don't know anything about it, but like me, you know, you literally grew up playing soccer behind the county prison on their field, you know, without knowing anything about what went on in there, you know, you can do something about that. That's in your neighborhood. And those can actually be a lot easier to affect sometimes than the bigger ones. So again, think about what's in your neighborhood. Think about what you care about. Think about what conversations you can have. Um, and just remember, you know, especially locally, like they say, all politics is local. You can have a lot of agency over that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely where my advocacy work started. And, you know, that's how I got to the level of being able to talk to a state senator once a week is that I started working with our local board of supervisors in San Francisco on county jail issues, you know, and 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 especially access. You know, I mean, we've got one of our county jails in San Francisco, the 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 deputy sheriff that's in charge of it now basically gave before the pandemic stopped all 12-step meetings stopped church groups from going in stopped certain types of other volunteer groups from going in that were doing educational services and and just put them all on hold for like a month while she got used to working there you know and it's like those are the services that people rely on you know and and they're not they're free you know, we don't charge. I, I bring an AA group into into the county jail. We don't charge. We don't charge anyone for that, and we don't pay our volunteers. You know, it's all done because people want to help. And you know, these rules about like San Quentin is a great example. It's a program prison. It's a, you know, it's probably the most progressive prison in the country. Yet, if I'm a volunteer in one group, I can't go in with another group because they're so worried about some kind of inappropriate relationship developing that they don't want you being in the prison more often than once a month if you're a volunteer. And unless you've got a brown card and you're running an organization, it's just like, it's crazy. You know, I can't do a 12 step group in San Quentin because I'm on the board of directors of another group that goes into San Quentin, you know, and uh, you know, I can guarantee my interest is not to go in and, and develop close personal relationships with individuals that are in prison. The only person I even know in there that that I'm really close with is on death row. So I can only see him via visit, you know? So it's not like I'm, he's out in general population and I'm trying to slip him a cell phone or something. So the it's just- around keeping people out. I mean, if, if, you know, if your listeners, you know, see a con, you know, the contract that volunteers have to sign saying, you know, basically what they say is, I will not care about you. I will never talk to your family. I yep. will not treat you like a human being. You know, I mean, it, they, they really pretty much say that. I, I won't tell your mom that you love her, you know, nothing yeah. like that. Um, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's disgusting. You know, it's really disgusting. I mean, and, and you pretty much got people that sign onto them contracts. I know a bunch of them. I, you know, and, and I always debate that with volunteers. Like, how can you become a volunteer and be strict on these DOC policies when you know they're inhumane? You know, is you that ball in your fucking life? They, the only thing you could do is come into the prison and carry out the DOC's um, policy? Like, for real? Fuck out of here. I don't need you. I don't want to. I don't want your volunteer service in my life because I know they're not sincere. And I know a lot of people. I was part of a bunch of groups in the prison that the volunteers come, they get the knowledge, they get what we're offering, but you can't even tell them your last name. I can't yeah. even say my name. I can only give my initials. You're not allowed to know my name, but you're allowed to come in and pick my brains and get these information that you want to write your little grants for your organizations, but you can't know my name? What like what type of shit is that? You know, and I always say that to the to the volunteers. If you wanna to talk to me about what's going on in the prison, you're gonna to have to know who I am at the person first. You gonna have to know why I'm here. You gonna to have to know that I am your equal, even though I'm in the other side of the wall. We are equals, and if you can't treat me as equal, then bye. There's plenty of volunteers that are gonna come in and try to get that information. 
-hmm. And this is not an indictment on all volunteers. These are the volunteers that come in with their hidden agendas to carry out DOC agendas. And I know plenty of them. I know plenty of organizations in Philadelphia, such as the Prison Society. I put their name out. I take responsibility for that. I know plenty of them. They go into the prison and get money from the prison. So how you gonna tell me you are an advocate for prisoners when you sleeping in bed with the DOC when they funding your operation? That means you 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 not allowed to know my name, but you allowed to come in and talk to me. What's going on on the prison block? How can we make it better so you can go back and report to the DOC? Is y'all crazy? You know, and this is the type of stuff that I'm talking about. You know, we talk, we talk about human beings. Because I don't care if you're behind a case or a wall, however society want to call it. At the end of the day, you are a human being. You got a mother, you got a father, you got daughters, perhaps grandkids. You are a human being that just made a mistake. We all make mistakes. And if somebody out there haven't made a mistake, just contact me and I'll give you the whole show. You be the 100%, first. 100%. You be I the think first. That's, the big, that's the big secret, right? You know, oh, but, you know, but, but to the volunteers. But to the volunteers that go into the prison system under the disguise that I care and really don't, man, get out of here. But to those that go in and really got compassion in their heart and really don't follow that little contract that the DOC gives them and really care about a person, because I know plenty of them. I know plenty of volunteers that come in and become mother and father figures to the guys in there. Absolutely. Plenty of them. They don't get enough credit. They get pushed back from the DOC. Why'd you get this guy to hug? You can't be giving it. You can't shake hands. You can't. You're too friendly. You are convict friendly. That's what they say. Why the fuck you allow a volunteer to come into your institution and you don't want them to be convict friendly? What is he looking for? Because if I go in to volunteer to any program, that means that I care about that program. That means that I'm caring about the human beings that are participating. But like I always say on the show, and I will say it again, prison walls are not just there to keep people in. They're also there to keep the general public taxpayer from knowing what's going on behind the walls. Because if you get to see what's going on in one day behind the walls of a woman's prison, you will be outrageous. How you got male guards trying to strip women, searching women, just to get a free feel under the disguise we searching for contraband, right? You be outraged, you know? So I suggest that as a taxpayer, you have the right to demand that your local state representative take you on a tour of the prison in your community, perhaps where you playing soccer at. Lawmakers seize the moment to spur on the overhaul of a legal system they consider too lax. Kids that once stole hubcaps, now rape and murder. No fair punishment. Experts call them super predators. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. There are no violent offenses that are juvenile. You rape somebody, you're an adult. You shoot somebody, you're an adult. Virtually every state, almost 45 states, enacted laws cracking down on juvenile offenders, making it easier to prosecute youth in adult criminal courts increased penalties. But at the same time the laws were being enacted, juvenile crime rates were already starting to show a surprising trend. Juvenile crime rates have been plummeting during this period of time in the wake of this panic. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh -huh. so one, yep, one of our, one of Sam's you know. campaigns has been, you know, visit to lawmakers and everybody visit a prison, you know, hashtag visit a prison. And we challenge lawmakers who are making these laws to go and see them. Now, it doesn't change everybody's minds. You know, some people still think everybody should be locked up, but it changes a lot of people's yeah. minds. And even if it doesn't change their mind right when they see it, you know, they're gonna think about that the rest of their life. And you and just like we're talking about with second chance legislation, you know, you gotta keep revisiting these things over and over again. And so definitely, you know, go in, um, encourage your lawmaker to go in, meet real people, um, and I'm also glad that you brought up the cost because, you know, one thing about FAM that it is nonpartisan. So I have, you know, personally written legislation for some of the most progressive and the most conservative lawmakers and everybody in between. Because right now, you know, in Pennsylvania, we have Republican controlled house, uh, houses, the legislature and a Democratic governor. We have to work with everybody to try to get some of these laws passed if we actually want to see you know, mechanisms for people to get out. 
one thing that a lot of lawmakers on both sides have been really shocked at is just the cost. So, you know, people don't know every single person in Pennsylvania is billed to you as a taxpayer, one person in Pennsylvania, $57,000 a year. That is more than most Pennsylvanians, you know, yearly salary. And that's the cost for just one person for one year in a Pennsylvania state prison, 57K. Now you multiply that by the 40,000 plus people that we have in state prisons in Pennsylvania. This is again, not even including your county jails. If you do that math, as the Pennsylvania Auditor General did a few years ago, uh, the 2018-2019 um, Auditor General, General report was that our Pennsylvania state prison system, $2.6 billion per year. Conservatives and Democrats all over the place, people are shocked by these numbers and lawmakers don't know this. They're not an expert on every single subject and they can't be, right? And that's why they are relying on us as their constituents, as people in the community, as advocates to tell them that. So I also like, I think sometimes, you know, we we know, we know the human cost, right? We're talking to our loved ones, we're living the torture that is either being in prison or having a loved one in prison. Uh, we're responding to letters, we're talking to family members, you know, if you don't know anybody in prison and you don't care about that, you care about the cost because it is gonna bankrupt us. This cost is insane. I mean, this is insane. And so we really have a lot of people waking up to this in Pennsylvania. And if all you care about is that fiscal aspect, you know, that's all right. Help us pass that second chance law. I would like everybody to care about all the aspects, but if you don't, there is, you know, a reason in this for everybody that money can be redirected to things like teachers, mental health professionals, trauma services for youth. You know, something that I hype a lot in all of my conversation is, you know, why don't we have these same victim services for people who have been victims of trauma who are incarcerated? You know, they're only really treated as an offender, as an inmate, as a convict once they're incarcerated. You know, ideally, they need to be having the exact same trauma treatment, intensive, you know, therapy, any of that uh, to help them deal with these issues that they've been through. And so, you know, so that's something as well. What we could do with that money as a state, you know, that would flow into prevention of crime to begin with, into a more holistic society where we are actually taking care of each other. You know, those possibilities are infinite. Yeah, I mean, I, and with that said, we and with, let me just say something, Kevin. Yeah, go ahead. With that said, and respecting your time, because you know we're actually for an hour, and this conversation <laughs> is just getting started. <laughs> um, I just want to say, right, that Maria, thank you for coming on the show and for being so candid with us. But I also want people to know that what got me interested in you, first of all, was the connection to Santa Alvarado, and second knowing that as a defense attorney, you have one of the only juvenile lifers, one of the only few that I know, one of the only, probably the third person in the state of Pennsylvania, juvenile lifer, that got out without lifetime parole under you. That is like, you know, that's the type of advocacy that I'm talking about. Like here we are, the whole state, every, every juvenile lifer is under lifetime parole, but yet in a little county called Erie, PA, what Maria is at, this one juvenile lifer, this home, and don't have lifetime parole. And you know who I'm talking about. You know, that's that's true, and I thank you for that. That particular gentleman still has a really long-ass tail. <laughs> so it's not, but you know, don't, it's still something yeah, that I would call de facto life. You know, it's still basically but he, life. But he but don't have life. life. But it's not life. And that's what matters. Because it's easier to fight numbers than to fight that life. And you did that. And, and, and I'm just saying that in the name of advocacy, that that's the type of advocacy work that we all need to bring when we go into these situations. Like, you know what? I'm going for it. Brian Stevenson did it when he went to the United States Supreme Court and fight for Jackson. He, he was only supposed to fight for Jackson. And he said when he got there, you know what? I'm fighting for every juvenile life, not just my client. Yep. You know, and that's the type of advocacy work that we need 
you know, so other women out there that's advocating to take a look at what you're doing and perhaps, you know, like understand that it's bigger than just one person. 100%. We're talking about and, human and to beings. to go for it, right? To go for it because it's... um. It's tough in that system because it's very isolating. And so you are so, I know you're gonna talk to some public defenders coming up, but you are so crushed with the weight of, you know, what you need to do for this many cases to do them at a really amazing quality level where you're, you know, creating legal issues and challenging new things and investigating and interviewing everybody that you need to interview and doing a mitigation workup. I mean, that is crushing to do it the right way, given the number of cases, you know, that you have. And so, you know, you keep trying to do that, keep trying to do that. And there are many, many heroic, amazing people in that system. It's very difficult, as you know. And I think that's also why there is you know, the common name of public pretender and all of that, which I'd love to talk to you about in another episode sometime, because I'm very interested in that and acknowledging that head on, right? That I think a lot of people don't like in that space, don't want to acknowledge that the people going through it think it's not for real and that they're not getting a quality legal defense. I think we need to discuss that and why that is. But one of the reasons I moved to policy was because there's really this big gap because it's so crushing and you become very isolated, just literally trying to keep your head above the water in that work and so between like what i saw as a practitioner there and what i know from families and what i know now like there's this big gap you know so i think even in the advocate space you know we're not tapping into the power of our incarcerated loved ones we're not tapping into the power that could be our you know supporters in the legal system not all of them are going to support you know, everything that advocates are doing, but a lot of them will. Um, and so we need to, you know, really unify that. And that's, I want to try to help bridge that gap. Well, I think one point that you brought up that's really important is the cost and the disparity between what we're spending on education in the United States, state by state versus what we're spending on incarceration. And so for anyone that complains about teachers pay, we need to keep in mind, California is a great example between eight, $8,500 and $9,000 a year on students, $43,000 a year on incarcerated inmates. The number one ba barrier or the number one uh, issue that could help people decarcerate in their communities is education. So the higher education that you get, the less likely that you're going to go to prison and the less likely that you're going to return once you've gone. So just, you know, I mean, it's just common sense, but, you know, people, we've gotten into this crime and punishment system uh, in the U.S., do the crime, do the time and all this nonsense. And when some people say that, they don't even understand what the time is, <laughs> you know, it's like the time is arbitrary and it's based on a lot of things that people don't even fully understand. And a ton of it is systematic racism. A lot of it is even more so socioeconomic class. And, um, you know, an education feeds into that. And so when we're spending all this money to incarcerate people from marginalized communities, we're ignoring the fact that we need to have a better system to support them in those communities, you know, and it's, it's just really a sad state of affairs. And, you know, and as we've talked about a ton in this show, you add to that mix, you know, trauma, generational trauma, specific sexual assault trauma and you've just got a, a it's a recipe for disaster and so you know i really appreciate all of what you brought i know we've had a very broad conversation here but i think what you're saying is right and we'll make our action item for your show because we put one in every show to find write somebody in prison just get to know somebody see what their lives were like or are like uh on the on a daily basis so Ave and i both have multiple people that call us weekly and I get to understand what it's like in different states to deal with, you know, the the system. And it's like I got a couple guys that call me from Kansas. One of them told me last night that his mattress is an inch and a half thick. It's like county jail. You know, this dude is in his 70s. You know, he's definitely aged out, but they, they treat him like he's like, a, you know, like he's a, a danger to society still. He's been denied parole 15 times already. So in Pennsylvania, we have a huge population of people over 50 who are incarcerated. And, you know, I want to I want to stretch what I said earlier, which was 57,000 is the average for one person for one year. Um, when you get older, right, we all know you get more chronic illnesses. You might have diabetes, you might have hypertension, you know, whatever is going on. 
typically older people need more medications. They need more doctor visits. You know, I feel like we're taking my mom to the doctor twice a week, you know? And so the same thing is happening for our people who are incarcerated and that cost then goes up and up and up. And so that can, for someone incarcerated in Pennsylvania who's in a personal care unit or a skilled nursing unit, the average cost jumped from 57,000 to 182,000 per year for one person. So, you know, again, think about, you know, this is, we have people who are wheelchair bound. We have people with Alzheimer's. We have people who, I mean, everything along that vein who can get no path for release, who literally pose, physically cannot pose any danger to our communities and they still have no pathway for release in Pennsylvania. And so that's why, you know, the medical and geriatric parole prong of our second chance agenda is really, really important. And Senator Street in Pennsylvania introduced SB 835, which is both medical and geriatric parole, parole and FAM is uh, pushing that really hard along with our coalition partners. Um, Abolitionist Law Center, Amistad, many groups in Pennsylvania. And I can send you that as well. And in action. Yes, please, please, please send me all that information. I will share it with Kat. And I do want to, can I say one more thing? Yeah, of course. Yeah, you just said a whole bunch of things. Okay, thank you. I did want to say too, you know, I don't want us to, and I don't, and not that you do, but I don't want us generally to shy away from the conversation about safety. You know, I think as a woman, as a mother of two toddlers, you know, I live in a neighborhood, you know, where I hear gunshots, where the marshals are busting down, the, you know, my neighbor's doors. And I do care about safety. And I'm not afraid to say that. And I don't think any any woman who's especially mothers are afraid to say that. We can talk about that and not shy away from that conversation because really what we're doing and the staggering rate of incarceration in Pennsylvania, it is not making my children or your children more safe. It is making us less safe. It is making my community less safe. And so I am I am tired of, you know, not engaging in that conversation. I want to engage in that head on. We are not safer. That has been proven anecdotally, data, statistics, evidence. Um, we are not safer and we know that from mass incarceration. So it's okay to be concerned about safety. And what we know is that what we've been doing for the last 30 years in Pennsylvania is not working and has been an abysmal failure that has not, not reduced crime. I mean, anybody that know us, death by incarceration, know by now that when we talk, we talking from a human right perspective. So we always and will always respect victims' rights in this show. And we have, plen we have plenty of... Uh, victim advocates that come on the show and that we support them and we care about public safety but our show is geared towards human rights no matter who you are and no matter where you find yourself what institution it could be a jail it could be a prison it could be a mental institution it could be a hospital we care about human rights of human beings we don't care about colors we don't care about race or none of that we care about human rights period and if anybody out there have felt uncomfortable today, good. Then we reach our goal. You, that means you listening. That means we motivating you. That means Maria says something that it's gonna move you to action in your neighborhood, you know? And again, I'm using Maria's word. If you're playing soccer or basketball or baseball behind a prison and you don't know what's going on behind that prison, then you should be ashamed of yourself. Stop kicking that ball against that wall because one day it could be you behind that wall wondering who's kicking it. You know, get involved. Get involved. You have the right to know what's going on in your prison. Is your tax dollars fueling these prisons and maintaining these employment for these people in there? So you have the right to demand to know what's going on. The Absolutely. same way you have the right the same way you have the right to demand what kind of education your kid is getting at your public school. You have the right to know what's going on behind these prison walls. And my name is Swale Gonzalez, co-host to Death by Incarceration. And I'm signing off how I always say it. If you heard it here first on DBI, then you know it's official. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. 
For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at deathbyincarcerationpodcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media, LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. And please, if you can, take action. Box Media Podcast.